Y'all want to say publicly how much I thank Becky for the wonderful job that she has done for us and so grateful that we had the time that we did with her and wish her well. I mean, this is by no means a, a bad parting or anything of that nature, uh, just a good opportunity for her and we wish her the best. I know it's not easy to work with us guys, but uh, she did it very well. We've been blessed in my time here to have Danette and what a wonderful job she did and when she came in to say that she was resigning, I thought, oh no, uh, this is the end. And uh, Becky came in and picked up where she left off and did a great job. And uh, so the pressure is on Brianna. I know she'll do a great job. We're excited about her. I said she just can't have the baby while she's here. That, that can't, can't handle that. Uh, can't handle that stress. Uh, I will be away from you this week. I will pity you while I'm in the mountains at Red River, New Mexico, uh, speaking and enjoying the speakers there. Uh, I'll return. I'll be with you Sunday morning, and then actually my family and I are going to tour the Holy Land, so that's going to be exciting. We're going to Arkansas and then West Tennessee, and uh, I think that's going to be, it's going to be some fun stuff, so we'll think about you and pity you while we're there as well. Um, have you ever um, used a phrase or a word in a way that was completely and totally wrong and you did it multiple times before somebody finally came up to you and told you that you were completely and totally wrong in how you used that word or phrase? It's rather embarrassing. I can't believe that I'm telling you this, but as a young preacher, I would use the phrase quite often, mainly when I did announcements, the phrase, in lieu of. Now, I would use it as uh, pertaining to. So like I would say, in lieu of football, a touchdown is worth six points, right? But that's not what the phrase in lieu of means. It actually means kind of instead of, right? And finally, one Sunday evening after my lesson, the sweet lady came up to me and she said, Chris, I, I don't want to embarrass you, but you're using that phrase wrong. And she very gently, kindly told me the right way in order to use it. And I felt so horrible, you know, because no telling how many times I'd use that phrase in the wrong way. You ever done something like that? You know, in, in lieu of that, let's look at some, let's look at some uh, passages of the Bible that maybe are misconstrued or misinterpreted. And one of those is Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, which reads, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You know, when I started working on this series at the first of the year, I started thinking about what are some of the things that we need to talk about when we get back to the basics. And this one kept coming to the forefront because if you, if you follow social media, if you're on social media, you see uh, abuses of Scripture a lot, quotations from Scripture that don't really match uh, what the person is trying to get across, people using it incorrectly, and this is one of them that always seems to rise to the top. This verse gets quoted a lot, but I'm not sure that those who are quoting it really know what it means. Does it mean that each one of us are responsible for working out our own way in order to get to heaven? Obviously not. Does it mean, as some would have us to believe, that it's about working your way into heaven personally? And the answer to that question is absolutely not either. So what does it mean? What does Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and following mean for us? Well, I think the key 
first of all, to understanding is, of course, context. And we've talked about that over and over again this year, but it's something that cannot be reiterated enough because even God-fearing, devout, sincere Christians can find themselves plucking something out of context and making it stand alone, whatever it may be. And certainly that is the case when it comes to this passage of Scripture as well. What does it mean? Well, first of all, we go to the word, therefore. Paul says, therefore. And for future reference, whatever, whenever you see the word, therefore, understand that there is going to be a connection between what Paul or whatever the writer is, whoever the writer is, there will be a connection from what he is about to say to what he just said. So therefore is connecting what the author is about to say to what he just said. So that's our first clue. Paul starts with therefore. So we have to go back a little bit to get some context. So let's turn over to Philippians chapter 1 and let's begin reading in verse 21. It says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, remember all that, because that's important to understanding Philippians 2 and 12. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Now, verses 21 through 24 are rather popular. Most of us have heard those before, maybe even probably at a funeral. Because we hear these words recited at funerals about how Paul was looking forward to the day of his death, that if it were up to him, he would already be at home with the Lord because that would be far better. But he knows that he is being kept around for a reason. He knows that he has more work to do. And so he believes that his job is to help those churches that are trying to get off the ground, those that may be struggling, also to impart them the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and help them understand what it means to be God-fearing, to be sincere, to be a disciple, all of those things that the church was uh, intended to be by God. And so that is his mission. He wants them, first and foremost, to understand that they need to be unified. And we see over and over again that Paul's words to the different churches were kind of based around this idea of being unified. That's a common theme that we see over and over again. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Be standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. They can't let persecution deter them. Paul is admonishing these Christians to press on, to stay together, and to endure. Now turn over to chapter 2 again, and beginning in verse 1, this is what we read. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort 
from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul continues with this theme of unity, that the brethren are to stay on the same page and read from the same script. They would only be successful if they stayed together. You know, the devil loves disharmony, and he loves disjointedness. And so Paul says, feed off of one another, cling tightly to one another. And then the next nine verses, Paul speaks of the need to put yourself second. Notice verses 3 and following. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is urging these Philippian Christians to be selflessly united. In essence, he's saying it's not about you. It's about a bigger picture. The context of Philippians 2 verses 12 and 13 is this context, this theme of unity. And if you miss that, you miss the entire point of what he's trying to get across here. Again, verse 12 begins with that word, therefore. What that means is, is that Paul is playing off what he has already said and what we have already read, that previous thought, and now he's connecting that encouragement to stay strong, to stay united, to be unselfish. He's connecting that with what is to come. And here's what's next. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You know, I've heard people say that you don't have to be a Hebrew or Greek scholar to understand what God's word has to say, and to that I would totally agree. But you know, there are times, there are certain words or phrases that it's really good if you do know something about the original language because it can help you to eliminate all confusion. And that is certainly the case right here. The phrase work out is translated to mean to labor or to toil in order to bring something to completion or fulfillment. So what Paul is saying to the Philippian brethren is that they must strive together to bring their salvation to completeness or fullness. Here is something else that many folks get off track on. Many Christians, in fact, when they're studying the Bible, we read the letters that Paul wrote as if he is writing to people in order to get them baptized. But that's not the case. You realize that these letters are written to people who have already been baptized. So in Romans chapter 6, he's not writing those words to say, here's what you need to do. You need to be buried in baptism because that is how you become a Christian. No, these people have already been buried with Christ. These are Christians he's writing to. Many times, what Paul is trying to get across, his message revolves around, here's how you live out your baptism. 
Here is how you remain strong in the faith. Here is how you are to continue to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And you see that theme throughout. So we misread when we assume that Paul is writing to people that he's trying to convert. It's not what's happening. But oftentimes we pluck out those things and we use it for our benefit to help in the salvation process. And I understand that. But we can't let it affect how we read these letters. And in essence, what he is saying here in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 is, live out your baptism. Work together, be unified, be on the same page to bring your salvation to completion or fulfillment. You know as well as I do that to live the Christian life is something that is a daily proposition. Even Jesus said, you die to yourself, you deny yourself, but you do that daily, right? That is a daily proposition. And that is made so much easier when you're invested in the church. God didn't expect us to practice Christianity alone on an island. The church has many purposes, but one of the major purposes of the church is so that we can be unified, that we can come together collectively to help one another in this daily walk with God. And we've got to be on the same page. We've got to be united Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's very similar to what he said in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, when he wrote, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Again, this idea of unity permeates Paul's words. Bring your salvation to completion or to fulfillment. Work to do that with one another, being on the same page. Salvation is not worked out in our lives. It has not been completed in us until we are of one mind and one spirit with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at verses 14 and following. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Grumbling or disputing, infighting or backbiting, quarrels or complaining, these are diametrically opposed to what our Lord intended for the church to be. This is the Lord's church. He purchased it with his own blood. This, this was in the mind of God from the very beginning. So how dare us treat it in a in a selfish manner. How dare we place all the, all the attention on ourselves and shine the spotlight squarely on ourselves when this is a blood-bought institution? We have no right to treat the church in a self-directed manner. To be unified means that I'm going to have to give up some things. But so often, quite the opposite happens. We want to cling to our rights. We want to cling to what we believe is ours. And we put all the focus on ourselves. But Paul addressed that over and over again in his letters. This isn't about you. This is about being on a team and being a part of a team that is bigger than yourself. Occasionally, you'll hear people use this verse this way. They'll say, well, you just have to work out your salvation on your own, and I have to work out mine on my own. But that is not what Paul is saying here. Such a sentiment stands in direct opposition to what Paul has been saying all along. We work out our salvation collectively. 
We do this by being of the same mind and of the same spirit. We do this by submitting to one another. We do this by being on the same page, reading from the same script. This is not something that can be done individually. The context of Paul's words are within the framework of the church. And there should be unity in the church. This is about us, not me. So what about the phrase fear and trembling? What does that have to do with working out our own salvation? Well, this becomes easier to understand when we grasp the context, and we actually see Paul use similar language to this in Ephesians 5.21, for instance, when he said, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You know, we fear God, we revere Jesus, we stand in awe of our Lord and our King, and we do this because we love and respect Him so much, and we fear disappointing Him. We don't want to let Him down. I mean, if we are a child of God, we want to make Him proud. And so we do what He commands of us. We live as we should because we want to please Him. And that includes submitting to one another, preferring others above yourself, putting yourself second. In other words, a reverence for Christ looks like selfless unity in the church. Again, that's what Paul is getting at here in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Notice verse 13 again. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God works in us to bring about the transformation that we so desperately need. The Philippians were being transformed from the inside out, and we are as well. God is working to change our affections and our complete manner of life. However, this is not a passive work. We don't just get to sit in the pew and let him work on us. There are things that we are obligated to do as well. We must strive to be more like Jesus. We must live a surrendered life. We must work hard to be completed. And some might ask, well, are you saying that you have to work your way to heaven? No, not at all. But we do have a responsibility in all of this, don't we? The good thing is we don't have to do it alone. I mean, over and over again in these passages, we see Paul using plural pronouns to show that this isn't about you, it's about we, it's about us. And so we're not left to do this on our own, but there is a sense in which our salvation is personal, right? Salvation, Christianity, is a grace-faith system. And we'll talk more about this in a few weeks. But what that means is that Grace is God's part in the salvation process. Faith is our part. And as we've talked many times before, grace is that free gift of God that he offers to us, but it's not a gift until you receive it, right? And so we receive it by answering the conditions, by responding out of faith. People say, well, I don't believe faith saves you. I absolutely do. Faith does save you. But only a faith that does something. And people say, well, you know, it's not about works. Well, in a way it is. Because Jesus even mentions faith being a work in John chapter 6. It's just not a work of merit. It's a work of faith. It's a work related to our response to that grace that has been offered. Because grace is a gift, and a gift is not, receive, uh, not a gift until you receive it, right? The gift of grace has been offered to all, but not everyone is saved because not everyone receives it. That would be cheap grace if it was just offered to all without you having to do anything. We must respond, and the way we respond is through faith. You know this, salvation comes through faith, a faith that doesn't try to earn anything, but rather that responds to the gift. And we all know that we can't earn this. 
we have no earning power because, as Paul said, we are dead. We are, we are corpses outside of Christ. Not only are we sick, we are dead. And corpses don't raise themselves. Only God, only Jesus is in the resurrection business. Dead people have no earning power. So there's nothing we can do to earn this or to merit this. But we do have to respond. There is still something that we have to do. You know, it bothers me when people say, well, you know, we're under grace now. As if God was a law keeper in the Old Testament, but came to the New Testament and decided, I'm going to be about grace now. We see grace throughout the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. Grace is not a concept that came into existence just in the New Testament. Genesis 6, 8 shows us the grace of God afforded to Noah and his family. In fact, it reads, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Abraham was not blessed because he deserved it. Jonah is a book of grace. The book of Hosea is the epitome of grace. Through the catastrophic life of this prophet, God revealed his love, his mercy, and his grace. But you'll notice in all of these examples, and even more that we could mention, they all had to do something. They all had to respond. Not so they could earn it, it had already been offered. But in order to receive it, they had to do something. I mean, Noah, for example. I mean, I firmly believe he'd be among those lifeless bodies floating on the surface of the water if he never gathered the wood or swung a hammer, right? So you have to do something. God extends grace, but we must be willing to receive the favor. The only obvious response to grace is faith. And faith in God cannot exist without obedience. When we cheapen grace, we cheapen the cross. When we portray grace as a gift void of any human response or obligation, then we cheapen the suffering that Christ endured on behalf of all sinners. All Christians who are sitting here this evening have benefited from God's grace. In fact, all people in all the world who are alive right now have benefited from the grace of God. Have they not? The very fact that you are allowed to live without God striking you dead is a testament to His grace. Even if you're lost in your sins, the fact that you are currently still alive and being able to draw breath so that you have the opportunity to receive the gift, that is still grace. But ultimately, you have to receive the favor in order for salvation to occur, right? Once you become a Christian, the task becomes remaining faithful. And that's difficult. Any of us who have walked in the footsteps of Jesus, any of us who have, who have tried our best to be a devout Christian, to live faithfully, know that it's not always easy, that there are peaks and there are valleys, there are difficult times. But that's made so much easier knowing that you have the church family on your side that you're a part of a team, that you don't have to go this alone. And our salvation is brought to fulfillment when we work with one another, when we cling to one another, when we encourage one another, when we feed off of one another, when we share with one another. If Paul were writing to Abilinians instead of Philippians, he would say, work out your own salvation, Odom Lane, with fear and trembling. Paul is admonishing us to be united because unity is a sure sign of salvation not that you're going to be united on every single detail because you're not 
And I've heard people say that. I've heard well-meaning Christians say, you know what, we've got to be united on everything or else it's for nothing. And I don't agree with that at all because that's never been the case, ever. No church, no group of people have ever been united on every single thing. And I don't think that's what Paul is saying when it, to- when it comes to unity. What does Paul talk about when he talks about unity? One Lord, one faith, one spirit, one baptism. There are things you have to be united on. And then there are other details, like the ones he mentions in Romans chapter 14, that are not salvation issues, and therefore you don't have to be united on. We had that discussion this morning, Bob, didn't we? It's a good discussion. You know, we're not united on everything, but we love each other. And we're not all going to be on the same page when it comes to every single detail. But we still love each other, and we still promote one another. We still encourage one another because we stand on the same side when it comes to the things that matter. And we seek to bring our salvation to fulfillment because we love one another, and we want to do God's will in all things. Again, it's not about me. It's about us. You know what the Statue of Liberty represents? Anybody know that? There was two main purposes for the Statue of Liberty. You know what they were? They were to be, number one, a guiding light or to show the way. And secondly, it was to offer hope to those in need. That's the purpose of the Statue of Liberty. To be a guiding light or to show the way and to offer hope to those who are in need. And I believe that Oldham Lane is sitting in this spot to be a so-called Statue of Liberty for this community. We are to show people the way and to give hope to those in need. So let's do that. And as we do that, we are working out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We are coming together, standing on the same side, performing the same deeds as we seek to please our Heavenly Father and thus bring others to Christ. Again, it's not about me, it's about us. So let's do what Paul asked and let's be united. Let's be on the same page in doing all of this. You know, we've had a good day together. I hope you feel like that. I I know I'm always encouraged by coming together every first day of the week. And I appreciate so much your love and support. And I wish you well this week and I pray that you will have a a serviceable week. Of all the things that go on in your daily life, I pray that you will serve God and you will seek to please Him in all that you do. And I pray that we'll see you right back here on, on Sunday, on Wednesday, but you won't see me, but on Sunday, and that we can come together and continue in this, this going forward, this plotting forth as we strive to, to bring our salvation to completion and fulfillment. And if you have a need tonight that we can help you with, or whatever your need may be, why don't you come now as we stand and as we sing. Amen.